chapter 10. Our scripture reading will be verses 1 through 10. We're coming back to the Gospel of Mark after having been away for uh, the Advent season and through the month of January. Uh, We'll be working again in the book of Mark uh, for a number of weeks um, through the Easter season and beyond really till the beginning of summer. And uh, I thought when I began the Gospel of Mark, because it was the shortest of the Gospels, that we would be through this book. And <laughs> Well, I don't need to say any more about that, do I? All right. Reading from Mark chapter 10, the English Standard Version translation. Reading the first 12 verses. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, enable us to, uh, even as as Stu has already prayed, to hear your message, to have your message out of this passage delivered, that you would, by your Spirit, uh, guide me to be faithful to the text, faithful to the concerns that your own Spirit had when guiding Mark in his presentation of this episode in the life of Christ. Help us to gain things that will enable us to understand more fully your ways, and to see that your ways are good, that your ways are right, and that there is actually joy in honoring you and following you. Help us also to see that even as your ways are presented to us, uh, we do not have it in ourselves naturally to be able to live up to all the things which are right and good and true in your sight. But how much we need not only to rest upon the finished work of Christ, how much we need that work applied to us every day, that we need your Spirit working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. And we pray this so that as those who name the name of Christ, we will be faithful followers, so that even as we live, we might have that wisdom toward outsiders and how we speak, how we talk about the things of the faith, that we as Christians would truly be salt and light to this world, to this generation. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want us to begin by recognizing that in Jesus' own day, there was a marriage debate. It was a political and religious hot potato, actually. It was the reason John the Baptist was put to death. Uh, Remember the details about John the Baptist's story. Um, Herod the Tetrarch, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod the Great is the Herod, King Herod during the time of Jesus' birth. All the nativity stories about Jesus make reference to, of course, King Herod. This was his son who uh, ruled over uh, Palestine divided up under the Roman Empire. Uh, So this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, ruled on the east side of the Jordan River, all of that area. That was his territory. Now, the story is this. Uh, This Herod's wife, Herodias, Herodias had been the wife of Philip, Herod's brother. And Herodias had divorced Philip in order to marry Herod. No other reason for the divorce other than the fact that she wanted to be married to Herod. But John the Baptist, in his preaching ministry, preached against that marriage. This caused Herodias to bear a great grudge against him. So Herod arrested him to please his wife. Yet John kept up his message to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias wanted to put John to death. But she couldn't because Herod was actually protecting John the Baptist because he often listened to him. He knew that he was a righteous and holy man and there was fear in Herod with respect to John the Baptist. However, Herodias' birthday comes about. Herodias has this daughter, teenage daughter apparently, Salome, and she dances in front of King Herod. It so pleases him that he makes a very rash promise. He says to her, even up to half of my kingdom, I will give you what is your wish. She runs back to her mom. What does mom say? You tell him you want the head of John the Baptist immediately here on a platter. That's what got John killed. The point should not be missed. Uh, John the Baptist was willing to die for the sacredness and sanctity of marriage. The reason he was willing to die is Simply the case that marriage is something that God has created, God has ordained, not invented by man, not invented by human beings. And when marriage is distorted, when it's destroyed, when it's perverted from what God has caused it to be, when it's wrong in God's eyes, it's destructive to human society, it's destructive to human beings who participate in those kinds of of breakages of marriage. Now, we see this story. It's about Jesus and the Pharisees. It doesn't happen then in any kind of a vacuum. There are political and religious tensions all around this story. Jesus is once again in the territory that is ruled by Herod. The Pharisees are themselves in an alliance with the Herodians, the the, the camp of political followers who were allied with, with uh, with Herod's kingship. They are... So the Pharisees bring up this matter of marriage and divorce as an attempt, as it says in the text, to trap Jesus. It's a hostile kind of encounter. 
Uh, they, want to get, they want Jesus to say something that might get him arrested, like John the Baptist got arrested. Or something which they can say, that violates the law of Moses so that they can get him arrested. Uh, either way, they're intent on, on doing whatever they can to discredit Jesus, wishing to put him to death. Now, what we're going to gain out of this passage as we look at it is, is, is certainly not everything that the New Testament says about marriage and divorce. Uh, we can't even begin to cover all the dimensions of that. But in any case, we ought to look at what Mark wants us to see here. And even Mark abbreviates this story because it's also told by Matthew, and there's details that Mark leaves out that Matthew includes. And so Mark has his basic concern, uh, his basic point, his basic audience in mind, who are, once again, the members of the church at Rome. They apparently need to see some of these key things that Mark is going to focus on out of this encounter, out of the teaching of Jesus. The fact is, Greco-Roman culture was also in a marriage crisis. Our culture is in a marriage crisis. And so really, what does the gospel say? What are we to do? Those are our main concerns. So even though the story doesn't say everything that should be said or could be said about marriage and divorce, it does have some key essential truths such as these. Divorce always testifies to the deep brokenness of the human condition in some way, in some manner. Which is to say, divorce is is that which tells us that something is broken, something has gone deeply wrong in what we are as human beings. Also, we see in this passage that, that the real and only ultimate remedy for this is, is for human beings to recover and to practice marriage's true nature and especially the permanency of marriage. And finally, what Jesus is going to point out is that the motive for divorce, specifically as it's being practiced among the Jews in his day, that the motive to do this is incredibly deceptive. The motivation for why divorce would occur under the context that Jesus is speaking to, incredibly deceptive with respect to the truth. So we gather all these things together in the light of the gospel. And here's what we need to remember. Jesus came to save and to redeem us. And that gospel, that redemption applies to the matter of marriage and to all of its brokenness. The gospel has its direct application to the marriage culture of the day. The gospel applies to those things that break us down as human beings. Now, first and foremost, what we see here in this encounter and the teaching that comes from Christ is this. The, destructions that we, the destruction that we find with the, to marriage through divorce testifies to the very deep brokenness of the human condition. In verse 2, the Pharisees pose the question to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now understand what they're asking here. The concept of lawfulness here is, one, is it legal? Yes. But it also always carries the idea, is it moral? Is it righteous? Which is to say, is it a good thing for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the Pharisees knew that the Old Testament had its divorce provision. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses. 
that provision in the law refers to a husband finding some, quote, indecency, unquote, in his wife. And so consequently, the law says, when a man finds some indecency in his wife and he divorces her, he must write her a certificate of divorce. That was the basis. He found something, wasn't right, this indecency, whatever. But the question has always been, what exactly is this indecency? Now, the Hebrew is something that we can't pin down. But neither could the Jews in Jesus' day. Among the Pharisees, there were two different views. Now, the Jews, they knew their Aramaic, they knew their Hebrew, but there were two different views. There was a conservative opinion uh, taught by Rabbi Shammai. Divorce was permitted only for sexual sin. The indecency referred to sexual violations of the law. What was indecent was something sexually immoral. Opposite of this was the position taught by uh, Rabbi Hillel. He said other things besides sexual sin, even rather trivial things, uh, could be legitimate causes for divorce. Now, what do you think was the most popular view in Jesus' day? Yeah. Now, understand what's going on in the law of Moses itself, though. The legislation was given by Moses to regulate a practice that was already widespread and abusive of women during Moses' day. The, the Jews have developed a nation that's in millions from, from the 72 that came out of, uh, out of Palestine down into Egypt, out of the, the, the family of Jacob. They now number, some have estimated, somewhere between three and six million people. They've had 400 years of Egyptian culture. They've been practicing... Uh, a very easy kind of divorce that was invariably abusive of women. So what's going on here is something different than saying, yeah, it's okay to divorce. Jesus responds to the question, though, this way. What did Moses command you? That is, what did Moses legislate for you? And they answer from Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And then Jesus responds in verse 5 this way. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. How is Jesus responding to what is going on? He doesn't choose to settle the question between the two different schools of interpretation. At least not at first. Rather, Jesus moves to expose the real issue, which is, why is there divorce at all? Jesus says, in essence, this legislation came about because of the hardness of the hearts of the Jews. And, of course, hardness here speaks of an unwillingness of the human heart to be moved by compassion and care. Hardness here denotes a selfish heart, or the way we should see it in pretty much terms of our own culture, a me-first heart. Me-first heart. Now, the larger issue in terms of Jewish history is that, that this was a problem, uh, a long-standing problem, of husbands divorcing their wives. 
a thousand years after Moses, in the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, we see that God, through the prophet Malachi, is addressing this once again, Malachi 2.14. They're complaining, why, why aren't you paying attention to our sacrifices? That is, God, why aren't you honoring our worship? And the response in Malachi 2.14 is, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, the, the faithlessness that's being spoken of there is the faithlessness of divorce. At the heart of this whole matter of divorce is the idea that marriage, at the heart of divorce, is the idea that marriage is a me-first arrangement. Self-fulfillment. The spouse is supposed to meet my needs. That was the ancient issue. Thousands of years old. Same story today. But now it goes both ways in our culture. Men and women marry and divorce for the same reasons. Essentially a matter of self-love. Love given in order to have one's needs met in return. And then divorce is that reason in reverse. My needs were not met. Now, this is not just um, a popular opinion. The studies on divorce and reasons for divorce are so significantly voluminous today, and it comes back again and again, and, and, and the, the, the experts and the sociologists of divorce say this all began to happen back in the Enlightenment when a, a historical, long-standing understanding of divorce began to change, when people began to think that life was all about self-fulfillment, and that came to its greatest fruition in the middle of the 20th century and continues today. Life is about me first, my fulfillment, my reaching that point of self-actualization, whatever it might be, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So let's back up for a moment about what Moses was doing with his legislation. Moses didn't create a law that would permit a man to divorce his wife. Moses was not legislating or legalizing a new practice. Rather, most scholars recognize that Moses was giving legislation to regulate a practice that already existed for a long, long time, which was now out of control, and out of control in a direction that always disfavored the wife. And the point Jesus is making is that this legislation was necessary because something was very wrong with the inner spiritual compass of the Jews. Not only in the days of Moses, but also in his day. That a man's, that divorce was ultimately a matter of the heart. A man's inner spiritual compass failing to point to God's truth. Hardened against God's truth. So in Jesus' statement, he's testifying to the deep brokenness of the human condition. The reality of the me-first condition of the heart.
isn't so different today in our post-Christian culture. Marriage is seeing hard times today because human hearts are inwardly opposed to God's way of doing things, God's law, God's morality, those things which should govern marriage properly. The shift in our culture, please understand this, did not happen two years ago. Scholars know exactly when they can date the shift in our culture. It began with a new law. In 1969, the state of California passed the Family Law Act. Now that sounds like something positive, doesn't it? The Family Law Act. This is a law for the sake of families. This is a law that's going to help families. This is a law that's going to do families good because it's the Family Law Act, right? Well, that's the tradition of how laws in California are named. The more dangerous they are, the more misleading the name. The Family Law Act was the name given to the no-fault divorce law that began January 1st, 1970, which every other state soon after adopted. All traditional and all biblical reasons, which had been the only grounds for divorce up to that point, were now set aside completely, totally. And in favor of either the husband or the wife stating that there were irreconcilable differences. Therefore, no divorce could be contested. No divorce could be stopped. Now, it was this act that scholars say most deeply destroyed marriage within our culture. It subtracted out of the marriage covenant any sense of a sacred promise. It legally redefined marriage away from a form of a permanent commitment and it demoted it to a provisional agreement. So the premise and the promise of marriage was no longer, quote, as long as we both shall live, but in practice it became, quote, as long as we both shall love. Huge difference. If love stops, marriage shouldn't continue. What was now the legal standard soon became the moral standard and the moral vision of our culture. And in consequence, divorces began to skyrocket. So we need to be very clear here. That which destroys marriage is the same reason for why Jesus came. It's sin. The reason we have a marriage crisis in our culture is the same reason there was a marriage crisis in Jesus' day and the same reason there was a marriage crisis in Moses' day. It is because of the hardness of the human heart that me-first kind of commitment that believes that one's own personal happiness and satisfaction must triumph everything else. Now, Jesus goes on to show that the real remedy for marriage is to recover, uh, in practice, the true nature and permanency of marriage. So, in the text, having identified what divorce reveals about the human condition, Jesus now goes on to define marriage and how it ought to be practiced. We see that definition and practice given to us in verses 6 to 9. So the first thing that Jesus does then 
is to anchor the institution of marriage and creation. Not the law of Moses. Jesus quotes verses out of Genesis 1 and 2. Especially note this, Jesus says, verse 6, from the beginning of creation. When did God uh, do the work of establishing marriage? Right at the very beginning of the human race. Marriage isn't a matter of one's culture. Marriage isn't a matter even of the law of Moses or Jewish culture. Marriage is the first institution that God established for the human race. Then what Jesus teaches is this. The marriage bond is more significant than any other human bond. More so than friendship. More so than the bond a grown man and a grown woman might have toward their parents. Because in verse 7, Jesus quotes from Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now, let's understand something here. Leaving father and mother, the way Jesus has stated this, cuts across many cultures. Now, I want you to think about this. This is something that goes on even today. In many cultures, a man marries, but he doesn't leave his father and mother. Instead, he brings his wife into his family where he is still under the authority of his father, his parents. So instead of the married man being the leader in his own family, he remains under his father's authority, part of his father's family. And in practice, this means that the wife has a greater duty to her father-in-law than she does to her own husband. Now, if any of you have taught or, or lived or spent any time in multicultural situations, you know this is true. You, you've actually been able to see it. But I've done oodles amounts of premarital counseling, and I have found it to be de facto in many cases where a guy can't get married without his parents telling him what to do, or a girl can't get married without her parents telling her what to do. And, and, and it's difficult then for them to leave father and mother because there are still what we call the apron strings that don't get cut. As marriage counselors, we say, that's when in-laws become outlaws. Understand that in the ancient world, even in our culture, in pockets here and there, that approach is destructive to marriage. That approach is not the remedy that God designed. That approach is not how God designed it to be. Now, Mark's audience needed this correction because of their own practices of marriage in their day. They needed to see that God's word on marriage applied to all cultures since it was the original word on marriage. Uh, No ideas, no legal freedoms, no practices legally permitted in the Roman Empire about marriage which in any sense contradicted this definition of marriage could ever be moral in the eyes of God. And therefore, as Christians, they should never practice them. They couldn't even endorse them. That's Mark's first point that Jesus is presenting here to his own disciples. All of this applies to us as well. Now, the second point, Jesus is teaching that God made the human race with marriage in view. Now, this is vital. God created two sexual genders, and only two, for the sake of marriage. Jesus quotes again from Genesis, God made them male and female. The design of marriage, the meaning of marriage, the definition of marriage, 
are together grounded and defined as this male-female relationship. It is these two, a man and a woman, who can become one flesh. And Jesus quotes from Genesis 2, 24 again, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds his own authoritative emphasis. So they are no longer two, but one. The third thing that Jesus teaches is this. It is God himself who establishes the marriage union. Now think about that and the implications of that. God makes marriage to happen. That's what Jesus says in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together. Note the significance of what Jesus is saying here. It's God who joins a man and a woman together and creates the marriage union. It isn't any culture's marriage custom or marriage practice or any, any culture's law that actually creates the bond of marriage. It is God himself who makes a marriage to happen. Marriage only truly exists where this has happened, where God has done it. And God doesn't change. God does not contradict his own definition and design of marriage. Marriage only exists where God has made it to happen, where God himself has joined a man and a woman together. Jesus' fourth point. Marriage was designed to be permanent. Jesus makes this point in an emphatic matter when he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, to separate a husband and a wife breaks the union which God has established and joined together. This is what Jesus wanted to convey. Divorce was not part of the original marriage institution. Divorce is not some kind of liberty or freedom granted in order that one may escape from a marriage. Divorce is because of fall. Divorce is always because of sin in someone, someplace, somehow. Divorces occur because of moral brokenness. In the final analysis, divorces occur because one or both marriage partners do not recognize or honor or practice the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and your wife is your closest neighbor. Now, that's why the marriage and divorce issues, the redefinition of marriage, all of these things, the whole marriage culture, the nature of it, it's why they're gospel issues. The practical remedy for marriage is to recover the practice of its nature and permanency, but there's a hard issue that stands completely in the way. It's the deep issue. It's that we as human beings, very candidly, we struggle to make and keep this marriage permanent. Uh, just this last week, I heard the comment that this, this man was talking about his long, long marriage. He said, we lived in a two-story house. Her story and my story. <laughs> and the point being that 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 you get two human beings who see things 
very, very differently so often as they seek to live together. And it, there is no marriage made in heaven that has heavenly qualities all throughout its existence. That's, that's a pie-in-the-sky false ideal. All of us, all of us have this me-first problem. Mark's audience, our culture, even we as Christians, we have to recognize that the evidence of human brokenness is this me-firstness because it always inhibits us from loving other people as we're supposed to love them. Now, the gospel, though, is good news because it brings us a message about power and what Jesus Christ has done for us and what Jesus Christ can do in us to turn us away, to repent of this me-first perspective and to, to begin to move toward a Christ-first perspective in which we are liberated increasingly from ourselves and the bondage of sin so that we can actually do what God wants us to do, which is to love another human being as we love ourselves when we, with faith in Christ, keep our eyes fixed on him. Whereas Paul says we can be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to sin. The gospel, the grace and power of the gospel's transformation is what is needed as we return to a right understanding and a right practice of what marriage is all about. Now lastly, Jesus crushes the divorce deception. Uh, we see this when Jesus uh, talks privately to his disciples. You see, in, in, in both the Jewish culture of Jesus' day and in the Greco-Roman culture and in our culture, people see divorce as a way to be set free. T to be free, to break off with someone that we no longer desire or love or care about, perhaps even hate, uh, free to marry someone else that, that we find to be the fulfillment of our desires, we find to be more attractive. To find, this person's going to satisfy my need. Jesus says that path, that approach, is deceptive. It only takes us into deeper spiritual and moral bondage. Now here's how he presents that. The disciples want to ask Jesus questions, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples ask him again about these matters. So pretty much we can guess the disciples needed Jesus to cover the same ground again. Uh, this further question shows us something rather significant. The disciples were clearly hearing from Jesus what went against the culture of the day. In fact, we, also, we actually know from Matthew's gospel that the disciples themselves were following the patterns of the culture of the day. We know what troubled them about Jesus' teaching. It was the permanency of marriage. That was a stumbling block to them. In Matthew 19... We actually read where Jesus agrees with Rabbi Shammai. He doesn't mention the rabbi, but that's the position he agrees with. No divorce for Jews unless there was sexual immorality. 
That was the interpretation of the law of Moses. No divorce for Jews under the law except for sexual immorality. So in light of that teaching, uh, Matthew records the disciples making this response to Jesus. Now listen carefully. They have now understood that this easy divorce is wrong. You can't do it. The master has said no divorce except for sexual immorality. So here's what the disciples say. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Yeah, it's ironic. It's funny. But then also realize what they're saying. They are so accustomed to the practice of divorce and remarriage. They are so accustomed to the view that marriage is provisional, not permanent, that it seemed to them practically unrealistic to get married if they couldn't have the divorce option. Look at it this way. If the disciples had been in the state of California, if they'd been in the state senate in 1969 of California, they would have sponsored the Family Law Act. We sometimes have this rose-colored idea that in Bible times, people all had great marriages and raised great kids all above average. That somehow they had a much better understanding and much better practice of God's ways. That, that somehow they were just better human beings. But even among Jesus' own disciples, this is not the case with respect to marriage and the culture. Marriage and divorce. They were also deceived by the culture's deception on divorce. Uh, they thought that the option was practical. They thought the option was a healthy and helpful provision. The kinds of things you hear the divorce culture saying today. They felt that marriage was so risky that a man might so easily marry the wrong woman that was di divorce was needed just in case the right woman came along. That is, that remains, the divorce deception. That this field has turned a bit brown. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence. So many men and women of our culture believe that divorce is really some kind of a blessing. That divorce and as a, as a remarriage option is the best approach to marriage. That in legal terms, divorce should remain a no-fault provision for every marriage. How does Jesus really crush that view? What he says in verses 11 and 12. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything that go directly to the heart of the matter. He says in verses 11 and 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Jesus is giving God's perspective, God's, God's standard here. In doing so, Jesus is pointing out how, how the pattern of practice, that this pattern of practice takes people into deeper moral brokenness. We know today that there's perhaps no brokenness that more profoundly hurts the human soul than sexual brokenness. So Jesus isn't being harsh and mean when he describes this pattern as an adulterous pattern. To intentionally break the marriage bond when no sexual immorality has been present, that's the issue that Jesus is addressing, remember. In order to marry someone else is to commit adultery, against the wife or the husband who's been forsaken. So this kind of provision was not a form of freedom. 
breaking the law of God never gives us greater freedom, but rather a greater bondage to the patterns and wreckage of sin. Mark's audience needed to see this. We need this. We need it even within the Christian culture. There is no freedom ever in pursuing a pattern or path which God calls sin. And that's truly Jesus' strong defense of God-ordained marriage. We need to see the marriage, the marriage covenant, as a permanent bond that God has established between a husband and a wife. We need to see that two Christian believers, their marriage can't be canceled unless there's sexual violation of their one flesh relationship. Now wrap this up. Let me, remember, let me remind you of what we said at the beginning. This passage, this message, do not say everything which the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. But here is the immediate implication that the disciples should have caught from what Jesus said. It's what Jesus was indirectly telling them. Work on your marriages, buddies. If you think that, there's, that, that we shouldn't be married because there's no divorce option, what that means is, not that you married the wrong woman, it means you've got to work on your marriage. That's what Christ is saying. We need to see the same application. Realize that the deepest problem and issue is the hardness of our hearts, this me-first perspective, the me-first issue of sin. That's where the gospel must do its work. We need to see that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We're not righteous in ourselves. We don't love God supremely. We don't love our neighbor, especially our closest neighbor, our spouse, as we love ourselves. So we have this me-first problem, which Jesus died to redeem us from, to transform our minds and our hearts, to give us the heart to live as living sacrifices, to be devoted to Jesus so that all of life is lived Christ first. We need this so that we as husbands and wives can be first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ where there's daily worship of God, daily care towards each other, daily confession of our sins to each other, where we, through the grace that we have in Christ, are loving our closest neighbor as we love ourselves. It amounts to this. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other at all times, and we need to live it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these words, how much we need to know that the words Jesus gives us are ultimately the wonderful words of life. So help us to desire gospel truth, gospel transformation, the grace of your gospel to live within us, and help us as Christians to do the right things with respect to marriage and our culture to do all we can to work hard to make our marriages what they should be in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.